This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Disruption is our topic today. Here's a scenario. Helicopters fly in relentless circles all day. The dog squad and task force guard assemble with hundreds of police. Their aim is to stop the disruptions to our roads, and railways and tunnels. The floods have made some roads impassable and there are landslides on the railway lines. Disruption to traffic, disruption to business. Police intelligence, with a tip-off from the Bureau of Meteorology, has found the professional pests who are causing this chaos. Arrests have been made at the headquarters of the coal and gas giants, as well as at the banks and media companies that pump up their confidence in their future. They've rounded up the industrial giants in ag as well. The new laws rushed through Parliament late at night have made it a crime to warm the oceans and atmosphere through carbon and methane. This is causing precipitation that our economy cannot stand. The Minister for Roads said she'd had enough. The inconvenience of being constantly too late because of one climate emergency or another has forced her hand. She said, these folks just can't disrupt our lives like this. They're professional pests and profiteers. Police have feared for their lives but today have made some brave arrests who help us get back to law and order. End of quote. This is the Climate Action Show, and there are many ways to take climate action. But the radical flank called Blockadia by Naomi Klein is shifting what's possible. Here's Sue Higginson in the New South Wales Parliament talking about the draconian laws used against Blockade Australia. Blockade Australia, as we know, is the very reason and the trigger for the minister who sits here and introduced these regulations, who was inconvenienced apparently on a morning as she was driving to work and she was worried about people getting to a place on time, that the reality is the real inconvenience is the inconvenience I have to wake up to every day right now in my home region and my hometown of Lismore in the Northern Rivers, where the human face of climate change is alive and well and is being experienced every day and every night. And every night because people are not sleeping, because they nearly drowned. They nearly drowned from the catastrophic climate change event that took place in the Northern Rivers. Blockade Australia and the very 
many members are literally the human beings, our fellow human beings that are engaged in end of times conversations. These are very, very sad conversations. I am not sure if you've ever had an end of times conversation. I happen to know a lot of young people, young people that are engaged in these conversations. They are concerned about the apocalyptic fires. They are concerned about the catastrophic floods. They are concerned about the agricultural crop failures and food security. And they are concerned about the millions of climate refugees when we hit temperatures that we cannot survive. And here's Auntie Caroline Kirk, who was caught up in the arrests. Um, they've just come in and raided us again, um, not unannounced. Um, we've seen them coming over the hill and we tried to scream. I had no voice. I had no whistle. I had nothing. Um, they've got me up now for um, intimidation. They're going to take me in. So please, people, help us put money in for our courts and our things. Um, just know that I love you all. I'm First Nations. I'm an elder here. All I was doing was standing here teaching my old culture and bringing things out. I wasn't doing nothing else. I can't run. I can't climb. All I do is I stand on the ground and I teach my culture. I'm an elder. Where do I have to go and get a right to go and sit at a, at a barbecue and talk culture. Why do I have to get a letter to get for the minute, uh, for the, uh, what is he? The big gad cop fella, that big fella, you know? If, if I've got to write a letter and ask him, can I go and have a public speaking? And I'm not speaking, I'm only just talking to my crew. What's wrong with them? Why are they doing this to us? Why is took everything from us? And now you still want to take, now you want to take us elders again. That's not right. Stop taking from the land. Look at our cold, our climate. You know, you need to breathe, the trees to breathe. That's what makes oxygen for you to breathe. You need the water to run free. That's how you got water is life. What's wrong with you fellas? Why do you want to take from? You just have to start fucking leaving, not taking. Please help us look for blockade come Monday. Come Monday and show these people that we, they can't stop us. I'm a five generation and you're trying to take me out. Sorry, you won't do it, bruh. I've got too many behind me. You may have seen the Blockade Australia person called Marley locked to her car. She had experienced the Lismore floods. And a furious man comes up to her and shouts and swears at her outside her car where she's locked on. And she says this, to this man, I would say, I stand with you. It is for you. It is for your family that we do this. It is for everyone's people that we love, that we take this stand. It is for all of us that we need our life support system. And here's Mali herself. I've felt pain and anger and grief and sorrow and complete and total heartbreak this year 
as a direct result of climate change. We're here because we're in a climate emergency. Ecosystem collapse is now. It's happening now. The colony of Australia, this destructive, violent system landed here, hell-bent on spreading extractive processes all throughout this continent, ripping out of the soil, out of the earth, out of the place that gives us all of our life. I am one person, I'm locked onto one car, and the entrance to this tunnel is blocked. You will hear tonight how the New South Wales Parliament was begged to repeal the new anti-protest laws. Eminent organisations like Amnesty International, the Human Rights Law Centre, the Environment Defenders Office, the Bob Brown Foundation, Southeast Forest Rescue, Friends of the Earth, the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change, the Hingura Women's Trust, Lismore Environment Centre, Goongara Environment Centre, 350.org, the Sunrise Project and many more. They petitioned Parliament. And when Sue Higginson says they were unmoved, Parliament was unmoved by such informed advice, it's no wonder that nonviolent action seems to be the only way to stop the system that's destroying us. Now, I've struggled with the idea that any climate action that's not disruptive is ineffective. I don't think that's true. I think there is a cumulative effect of all our actions and many of you are taking actions in with many organisations in in many ways. However, when we hear about the corporate capture of Parliament, as Sue Higginson says, it's time for a lot more of us to take some sort of creative and disruptive action. We've had, we've seen a real sort of corporate capture of our democracy. Having a Having a stronghold and a capture on our lawmakers and our democracy has been really important for those corporations over the last few decades because, I mean, anybody in the business of, well, in frank terms, cooking the planet and destroying the climate and climate stability, uh, anyone in that business really needs to have a business plan to control dissent and, and to, in order to keep doing their business. I've had to edit this show down for broadcast. There was a lot more material that I couldn't use in the hour. But for a longer version, please download the podcast at Climate Action Show 3CR. It's called Disruption. And to give us a little bit of an international perspective here from the UK is Extinction Rebellion with a rallying cry. We are unstoppable. When we stick to the pavements and the parks, when we march and then go home, we know what happens. In 2003, two million people flooded the streets of this city in opposition to the Iraq war. Two months later, we invaded. What would have happened if those two million people had sat down in the road and refused to move? What will happen if each of us here go away and bring 10 new people and each of them bring 10 new people and we sit down in the road in September and refuse to move? I don't have that answer, but I think it's time we found out. Thank you for being here. There's work to be done. So let's get on with it. We are unstoppable. We are unstoppable. 
Sue Higginson is our guest now. She's a lawyer and she was the head of the Environment Defenders Office. Now she's been elected to the New South Wales Upper House of Parliament and she came out fighting last week on behalf of the Blockade Australia people who found the full weight of a new police group called Strike Force Guard crashing down on them. Sue, I want you to tell listeners what allegedly happened. Firstly, we saw a uh, what we understand to be a peaceful, organised group of people on a rural property just an hour out of Sydney uh, towards the Blue Mountains. And the group of people were gathered together um, undertaking discussions, perhaps activity discussions about... Um, how they would get their climate alarm bells ringing in the centre of Sydney. Um, now, I don't know what the full details of what was being discussed at those at that camp, um, and nor do I necessarily think it's relevant. Um, what we know is there were people gathered, uh, there was all sorts of people there, and um, some people who were at that uh, gathering noticed covert people lying in the grass um, and um, they weren't people who had been invited to the gathering and the, those people were questioned about who they were um, and those people didn't reveal themselves to be police officers. Um, and so, you know, I think from there, there was then a, um, an entire operation where more police attended uh, the, um, the gathering of members of the community on this private property. Um, and then there are various discussions about what happened. But what was clear, a statement was put out from Blockade Australia that hasn't been contested by the police in any way, shape or form, and that there were um, up to 40 people uh, members of the community who were um, placed under um, the control of police. Um, they were searched, they were stripped of their um, communications devices, they were um, all access to their vehicles was denied, and they were placed um, on a patch of wet grass for several, um, several well, up, up to a, more than an hour. Um, and they were interrogated by police. Now, what we know is some of the people who were um, victim of this police operation, there were young people, there were people with disability, um, and there were old people. Um, and they were all subjected to this incredibly intensive uh, police operation. Some people were, um, some people were charged with particular offences. Um, and some people were remanded, taken into police custody. Uh, we also know that the operation was so frightening that some people fled uh, naturally. Um, uh, they fled and one person uh, was fled into the cold winter's night in the bush and was not located um, until the early hours of the next day. There was serious concern for that person's safety and the other members of the community asked the police to uh, mobilise um, search and rescue because of the concern for this person and th those requests of police were denied. The Greens have called for an investigation into police behaviour and it wasn't just there at that property, it was later apparently people hauled out of their cars, 
people knock on the door and people come to the door and then they're being filmed and um, according to what I read in the paper. So um, what what do you think will happen? Will there be a police inquiry into their behaviour? It seems like they've over overdone it, really. I had a phone call from somebody who had been driving to work with their daughter in the car. Um, to, they were dropping their daughter off, young daughter, and then heading off to work. Um, and they had only been out of their own driveway. They were on a rural road um, and they were had only been out of their of their property for about 10 minutes down the road. Um, and all of a sudden they were pulled over by a police car um, and interviewed with a body cam on. Um, and the police had an A4 sheet of questions asking the person whether they knew anything about Blockade Australia, whether they were involved in, going to be involved in any protest activities taking place in Sydney, um, and a series of questions. Now, this person, this person was um, quite a few hundred kilometres away from Sydney. This person was somewhere else in New South Wales, and similar experiences with people um, on the central coast of New South Wales in that um, regional area having their doors knocked um, in the late hours of the afternoon and early evening. Um, and um, some of these people were women over the age of 60 having to open their front door um, and get questioned by police with the same set of questions. And of course, with the cameras and the body cameras on. Um, very, very intimidating behaviour. So absolutely, we have, um, we called for, we've actually called for papers to be presented to the parliament about, you know, what is the background to this? What is the police briefings that have been involved? Um, and what, what sort of instructions are the police receiving and where are they coming from? And, and really, we're, uh, we're trying to ask the question about what is the strategy behind this um, interrogation, this intrusion, this incredible incursion into people's freedoms and um, civil liberties? And where is this surveillance coming from? And how is this remotely considered a strategic policing exercise that the taxpayers ought to pay for? Well, this comes back to the new law. Uh, Melbourne listeners might not realise this, but there was a new law in April, which was, you could frame as an anti-protest law, especially on roads and tunnels. And in Parliament, you tried to have the new laws disallowed. What was your argument? Yeah, so look, our argument, along with 40 uh, civil society organisations, including uh, frontline legal services and unions, various unions across uh, the country. Um, our arguments are that these laws are entirely unnecessary, they're onerous, they're harsh, and in fact, they have the hallmarks of draconianism, that um, they are deliberately seeking with the sim single aim of um, uh, an overreaction to people who are exercising their rights to protest and to dissent. What we're doing with these laws is we are giving um, police way too much power and we are making the penalties disproportionately onerous. Uh, we're looking at two years imprisonment, $22,000 in fines, and often all we're talking about is 
the simple breach of a road rule. Um, so the disallowance motion was trying to highlight um, along with, as I say, all these civil society legal institutions, including the Law Society of New South Wales and the Civil Liberties Society, that this is not, it's not the sign of a healthy democracy to do this. What we were really trying to, in Parliament, signal uh, um, and ring the alarm bells as well is that this is not the signs of a healthy or a mature democracy if we're introducing regulations like this. Yeah. Well, I think it's happening all around the world. I mean, Naomi Klein calls this blockadia, especially because of climate action. There's been such opposition to Indigenous people for their forests and uh, people, for example, in Canada to stop the tar sands pipelines. All around the world, this blockadia has happened. People want to block something that is in the long distance view, extremely dangerous, as we know, climate change is something that a lot of the population don't really get it. They just want to drive their cars and have their traffic traffic un uninterrupted. But we are driving our civilization off the cliff in a way. And I was uh, I read your debate in Hansard and it was riveting reading, really. I felt it was quite dramatic. These beautiful speeches being given. And the Labour opposition seemed to be agreeing with you. He understood it about climate change, but then he said, he didn't support the any change to that uh, uh, law, even though the rights of unionists to protest needed to be protected. And I thought, doesn't he get it? This is this is for everyone. It's not just climate activists. It's all of us for all kinds of things that happen in society that have to be slowed down and stopped if possible that are going the wrong direction. Why why do you think he he didn't or you didn't get more support? The the um, the uh, disallowance wasn't past so why was there so weak support yeah look the new south wales parliament unfortunately and as you say reflective of other jurisdictions too it's an unusual place at the moment um, we, we do need to remember that uh, i think consistent with naomi klein's blockade here and where things are we need to remember that throughout the um the 1980s the 1990s and the early 2000s we've had we've seen a real sort of corporate capture of our democracy. Um, we've seen in particular those really, really vested interests, large corporations like our fossil fuel giants. Um, they've been at the front line of this because they are, particularly when it comes to the climate um, activism and the climate discussions, uh, they are the villain in this story. So having a, having a stronghold and a capture on our lawmakers and our democracy has been really important for those corporations over the last few decades. Because, I mean, anybody in the business of, um, well, in frank terms, cooking the planet and destroying the climate and climate stability, uh, anyone in that business really needs to have a business plan to control dissent and, and to, in order to keep doing their business. Um, it's, you know, it's not lost on anybody really who follows this discussion and is engaged that the fossil fuel corporations have been generously, generously supporting the major parties in Australia, both at the state level and the Commonwealth level for many, many decades. They've been in our halls of parliament. Uh, for example, let's not forget the first anti-protest laws in New South Wales that were introduced back in 2014 was after uh, the then New South Wales Premier, Mike Baird, hosted the Minerals Council's annual awards dinner right here at Parliament House. And at that speech, he said, 
anyone that protests or gets in the way of these coal projects, we will um, we'll be putting the full weight of the law onto them. And then not long after that, uh, once again, the New South Wales government passed through some anti-protest laws and they were successfully imposed in New South Wales. So I think we do need to keep be very cognizant of that sort of corporate capture of yeah. centrist, central, you know, the centrist uh, yeah. politics. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and it is really tricky because some of the protests that we are seeing right now, particularly the Blockade Australia protests, they are very, very effective disrupting protests. Um, they're not the protests just on the side of the street and marching up and down the street or, or asking the police to close the road for an hour while they march mm. down with their colourful placard. Um, these, are, these protests are designed to disrupt. So, um, yeah, it, it, we, it is, at, we are at a... At, and, and of course, the reason and the mobilisation is because, um, as I said in Parliament, some of these people are engaged in these end of times conversations. They understand the role that these corporate interests and how, how much, how prevalent they are in our systems of democracy and, mm. and that the race is to get them out of the system so that we can get back to those fundamental principles of what we make laws for and what a healthy democracy looks like and um, allowing our civil society organisations to have a strong voice in parliament um, and one that is louder um, than those corporate interests. So we've got some reckoning to do. Yes, well, I, you did mention that end of times conversation and I have interviewed some of the people who were involved last week and I felt that, I felt they were young, the ones I interviewed were very young and they were really shocked by what had happened to them. They were prepared for a tough confrontation, but they hadn't realised how bad and how out of hand it, it would get. And those end of times, they're not making any actual specific demands. They do want a system change. They want all sorts of things to change, as you say, the corporate capture. And a, a, a couple of them, their lives have been upended by flood. You, you come from Lismore. You've seen it. We heard you on Juice Media on the radio. I played your interview from Juice Media because it was so raw and so moving. And so you know it. A lot of people who are listening to this program also know it through the bushfires and other big climate events. Um, but the people in Parliament, you said, I wonder if anyone in this Parliament have these end of time conversations. Well, they must all have teenage relatives or people who might talk like that, even elderly relatives. And I wonder how people listening to this programme or activists, how can we penetrate the bubble of Parliament, federal and state? How can we get through to them and have those end of time conversations and be taken seriously? Because at the moment, it they're on another planet, it seems. Yeah, look, it is it, it is really, really, really challenging. And um, I think that we currently can have some optimism. We've seen a massive change in government at the federal level. I think that after the federal election in um, May, we were able, many of us, um, and those that understand the depth of end of times conversations, I think many of us, breathe a small sigh of relief that at least now the hard work can start in earnest. Because um, up until the, um, the election, 
we couldn't even really have the conversations. We, it, what, there was no space for the conversations. But we've seen a change in government. We've seen a very different constitution of the parliament at, at the Commonwealth level. Um, I'm afraid, though, we're going, we're going to get stuck potentially on discussions about whether we legislate a target of 42% emissions reduction or not, rather than actually talk about how we avoid um, end of times and how we change the end of times conversations so that they are more hopeful and that we're looking at, at, you know, I wish in earnest we were talking about what we can do to maintain a 1.5 degrees warming only. I think that's, that we've already lost that gig, so we need to look at two degrees and what we can, what, what we need to do to adapt. As you say, um, I'm from Lismore. Uh, we're seeing, as I sit here right now in Sydney, I'm seeing south and uh, north of Sydney in catastrophic floods and people, the human face again of climate change and um, we're on the climate frontier. Uh, climate change is upon us, it's not going away. Um, at the New South Wales government level, uh, it, it, it's definitely um, a harder gig. It feels like we're in a bit of a bubble here. Trying to um, get through to this place is difficult, but I tell you, there's me and some of my colleagues, and we're going to keep shouting as loud as we possibly can. Um, I do think, uh, you know, in, in New South Wales, where we are still one of the largest coal exporters, and we are literally still approving new coal and gas projects, almost uh, monthly on average, we're still approving new ones, um, which is shocking. And we are one of the largest coal exporters in the world. Um, we need to really focus on New South Wales. We've got a state election coming up in March um, and we will all be campaigning as hard as we possibly can to shake up New South Wales. Yeah. Well, there's research to show that the radical flank of any sort of social movement like Black Lives Matter or women's movement can make moderate action seem more reasonable and they sort of shift the boundaries of what's possible to even talk about or think about. And this is quite radical, the Blockade Australia group. And they're going to take terrible penalties, I think, if those laws are still in place. They are going to be in prison, some of them, and, and certainly paying big fines. But what do you think about that thing of shifting the conversation, the radical flank being necessary, really, to shift the moderate position into a more favourable light? Um, I think that that's I think that that is the process of change. I wish it could, we could accelerate it, but I do think that this is precisely how change comes about. Um, there, uh, as I have represented hundreds of protesters across New South Wales and, well, Australia in courts, and so often um, I read out the one of the recent House of Lords decisions that refers to um, the history of civil disobedience and. Um, one of the lords there says, you know, my lords, civil disobedience has a very long, proud and honourable history yeah. in our country. He's referring to the UK there. Um, and he says, so often these movements are vindicated over time. And he mentions the suffragettes. And I said, when I'm making those representations to the court, I think of, I think of our forest activists and our environmental activists um, and now I add our climate activists, you know, it's um, we really do need to win the hearts and minds and the hope 
of as all Australians, knowing that it is so important. And sometimes these sort of more radical actions that members of the community do take does open up people's eyes. It does make them think a bit more. It puts the issue front and centre into the media each day. Um, and the hope is that through some of these actions, hearts and minds are opened. Um, if they're not one, at least they're open. And remembering it's the radical or the those more radical actions, they're one part of it all. And then there are others working at other junctions in our community and in our civil society for change. But I think without those, um, without those more radical aspects, then yeah, we don't get the alarm bells sounding quite as loud as we need to without no. them. No, I'm so glad to hear you say about the honourable nature of this stuff, because that's what this we've been doing this radio program for over 10 years. And it really is. We're sort of trying to honour people who are doing things that other people think are very out there and too. It's very, very hard for me to see any other way. And the reason being is, as I say, I have represented hundreds of, of frontline activists and every single one as I have prepared their case, because as you, when you are representing somebody, you basically have to have a quick and significant window into their life, where they've come from, who they are, why they've done what they're doing. Um, and every single person I have represented has an incredible story to tell about who they are. They are more often than not, they are the volunteers of our community. They are the carers, the nurturers, the teachers. They're the doctors. They're the. They are the people who, who, who are compelled to think beyond themselves um, and take action because they're engaged. And yeah, it's very, very hard um, to then to be to to think otherwise once you've been exposed. Yeah. Well, just to finish, Sue, what advice would you give to the climate activists who are now facing court charges and fines and possibly jail? And what would you tell their lawyers? What line would it be best for their lawyers to take? Well, it's really interesting you say that because I have been on the phone all morning to, um, to some of these climate activists who are facing some of these awful, awful charges um, and, and lining up good lawyers. Um, I would say... We do need good lawyers to help out right now. Those lawyers need to be strategic in their approach to these matters. And we need to be presenting to the courts about the importance of the role of civil disobedience. We need to be referring to those other jurisdictions where they're ahead of us. And they are really, really looking at the importance of a mature democracy. And one of the things about a mature democracy what is reflected in the way we treat people who are taking conscientious objection, who are dissenting, who care and who are thinking about the future and who are thinking about the planet we live on. Um, and we need to be presenting the very best cases for these people that we can. Um, and we need to keep working strong for law reform. Just because these laws have been introduced, it doesn't mean they can't be repealed. We need to keep insisting that these laws have gone too far and it's time to wind them back. Yes, thank you very much. Thanks for talking to our audience in Melbourne and in Sydney. And what do you think they should do to support 
this kind of movement? Is it writing to members of parliament? Now you are a member of parliament. Would you respond if thousands of people wrote to you? Absolutely. I think I think absolutely we need to we need to be reminding uh, members of parliament every day who are making laws and have the capacity to change laws. We need to be communicating with them as much as we possibly can. We also need to be helping those people that are on the front line and suffering from these draconian laws and their application and operation. So if there's any way we can assist them, including through providing them moral support, um, including through providing them um, messages of thanks and hope, and including, of course, providing financial support. Because as much as, I mean, I've been a practicing lawyer for 20 years and I've done um, decades of pro bono work, but at some point, uh, yes, even lawyers actually need to um, get paid for some of this work. And more importantly, if we can support some of those civil society legal organisations so that they can strategically support uh, some of these frontline people. And of course, the one thing we must do is keep putting the pressure on about climate action because every single person that's in this circumstance and facing these draconian laws, the one thing they want and they want our help to do is to get serious, rapid action on climate change. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sue. So we've been talking Thanks. to Sue Higginson in Sydney. She's a Greens member of the New South Wales Parliament and she's from Lismore. Thank you, Julia. Here's a song by Tom Hume. He sent it to me and his project is called Dovetail. The song is called Petition. Taking Aboriginal kids from their families. Whatever happened to bringing them home? There's been over 500 black deaths in custody. There can never be justice in a system that is racist to its birth. I can't stand these poor 
they keep taking away what we never had to give. And you can sign 100 online petitions, but you'll never get back. Over recent years, it's become impossible to ignore the impacts of climate change that are already with us. From sea level rise and coastal erosion in the Torres Strait to catastrophic bushfires and floods and months-long heatwaves in India, millions of people are already facing the climate chaos caused by the fossil fuel industry. And while we know that the solution to climate change is to end the age of fossil fuels and build a just transition to renewable energy, governments and banks keep pouring money into the polluting companies who are causing the problem. That's why no matter who is in government, it's up to ordinary people to join together and fight to end funding for fossil fuels. 350 Australia has a plan to take on the big banks funding the climate crisis. Fossil fuels can't survive on their own. If we can cut their funding, then we help save our climate. Every fossil fuel project stopped, every dollar redirected to renewables will make a difference for the people we love and even more so for our children and grandchildren. 350 is a global grassroots movement taking on the fossil fuel industry. In the New South Wales Parliament, here's Sue Higginson, who comes from Lismore, trying to get the anti-protest laws disallowed. The fact that we somehow seem to be able to walk forward in this place in spite of those pleas to our work, I find quite astounding. Um, to ignore or to overlook or to circumvent the comments of the Civil Liberties Council, the Environmental Defenders Office, the Human Rights Law Society, and all of those incredibly expert civil society organisations tells me that the fact that we can ignore their pleas, something is going significantly wrong in this place and wrong with our democracy. I also acknowledge the contribution that the Animal Justice Party, Ms. Emma Hurst has, the Honourable Emma Hurst has provided. These pleas are significant. This regulation is frankly affronting and it's fairly disgraceful in terms of what we are trying to achieve here in this place as democratic representatives that are here to preserve the very foundation of what is important to our democracy. I happen to have had a history of working with many people who have engaged in the acts the very brave and, yes, incredibly inconvenient at times, acts of civil disobedience. I happen to know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of remarkable people in our community, some deceased, some young, some still with us, 
who have participated in civil disobedience. And I can tell this house, this place here, not one of them has done it without significant detriment and compromise to their own life. The reason they do it is because it is important, because it matters, and because it is the foundation of creating the change that we need. They are the forward thinkers, they are the progressive people, they are the protectors of things that matters. I can literally and frankly go to places on this planet that are remarkable, that are pristine, and that are only there and exist in their current form because some people stood up contrary to the ordinary behaviour of their life and they took it upon themselves to inconvenience themselves and perhaps some others because it was the right thing to do, to protect the environment, to signal a warning to the rest of us who are going about our ordinary course of business. May it be playing golf on Sunday. May it be driving to the mountains to have a look. May it be going to work. May it be going to work. But they stood up, they stood up because they were on the right side of history. They knew it was important it was a matter of moment, and they stood up to signal the warning to our democracy, to our lawmakers, to come together to make the change, to face the wicked problems and deal with the big issues that we are facing. Blockade Australia and the very many members are literally the human beings, our fellow human beings that are engaged in end of times conversations. These are very, very sad conversations. I am not sure if you've ever had an end of times conversation. I happen to know a lot of young people, young people that are engaged in these conversations. They are concerned about the apocalyptic fires they are concerned about the catastrophic floods. They are concerned about the agricultural crop failures and food security. And they are concerned about the millions of climate refugees when we hit temperatures that we cannot survive. So frankly, the regulations that the government has proposed and that the government has enacted and that the opposition has supported, it's a, a serious blight on our democracy. So now we're going to the safe place where I interviewed two of the uh, protesters who had been really, I think, shocked and dismayed, but not deterred by the police actions that week. Tell us a little bit about how you feel the experience, how's it been for you and for other people? Hmm. Well, yeah, I think it's probably quite obvious from the outside, but it has been really, really hard to see the way that um, some absolutely beautiful people, some of the best people I've ever met, are being treated during this week. But I guess uh, the repression is absolutely huge, but it's also not really that unexpected. Um, part of the core strategy and part of the reason people are here is because they understand that 
Australia and its institutions, um, they really, they want to make money, they want to extract from this continent, they don't want to protect people and I guess the behaviour and the policing is, is really just highlighting that. Um, I think the people who are here and the people who support and um, have become part of this network are more determined than ever to protect the community, including from the kind of repression we're seeing. That's right. And you, you I've only read about it in the papers, but truly you must have been very brave to withstand what you did. And this is for a Melbourne audience. They might not really know what happened. Can you tell us? Yeah, well, I guess... Um, even before any disruption of Sydney happened, um, police have raided a private property in Colo after their undercover operation was um, foiled. And starting from there and relentlessly, um, people have been pursued, followed, um, given unbelievable charges, been held for premeditative um, charges, you know, just been absolutely smashed um, from every angle in a very very clear um, calculated attempt to suppress any dissent of this kind and I personally am quite devastated that the main focus of this um, network which is to to build community power and protect ourselves against Australia's blocking of climate action and protect ourselves and our community from the worst effects of climate change has really been overshadowed by this disgusting display of the power that the state has and the resources that the state have against really beautiful individuals that have come here from all walks of life with, you know, not necessarily that much in common, except that they really, really care about communities. They really, really care about the effects of this climate crisis on others, and they're deeply compassionate and beautiful people. I can see that just talking to various ones, and yet I don't think the public sees this in the media. Murdoch media, at least, they've been called professional pests, and you know, huffing themselves up about just how wrong it is to even stop the traffic but tell us a bit about the people and, and their motive don't need to say any names or anything but like what kind of has led them to really do this it's a very big thing to um blockade you know to blockade all around the world people are doing these blockades on various infrastructure but it's a very brave thing um who are they well i think something that people maybe aren't really um getting a transparent understanding of is that this is quite a large network and there's people here who are doing everything from feeding people to picking picking up people from the watch house and there's also obviously people out on the street but there is there is people here who have done all kinds of things with their life from you know all kinds of age ranges there's plenty of health professionals um especially mental health professionals who are clearly recognising this as a huge mental health crisis. Um, and, you know, m most of these young people who have largely been painted as, you know, angry and destructive, they're victims of the climate crisis. Like, they're really compassionate people who have either watched it unfold and cannot sit idly by or have experienced it themselves firsthand and don't want it for anybody else. Like, Give us an example. Yeah, so Marley, who was the person um, 
who was in that car, um, they're, they're from Lismore. Like, they, they've first-hand experienced this crisis. They're young. They know how bad it already is. And they just, you know, the disruption that people don't really like, it, it just is... It's both proportionate to the problem and it has a long history of being a thing that creates change. And, you know, it is really unfortunate that people feel personally targeted by being disrupted, but people, you can't identify with Australia. Australia is a, a structure of networks that are, are blocking climate action and they're, they're looking after private interests and they're facilitating extractivism to the point of total destruction really and the only thing to do when you know when you can't get enough money to feed your family properly and there's housing crises and there's you know public health crises and people can't even get paid enough to exist like the appropriate response is not to identify with Australia and its institutions it's to enter into struggle with people who care about that and people who can see a better future. And that's what we are. That is what all the people here are. They're hugely hopeful people that can see a better future and will not accept the conditions that people are in and people will, you know, be more adversely affected by as this crisis intensifies. Well, I think um, people have said that the climate movement is huge, but it has a radical flank, and this is the sort of radical flank. And by taking this action, even though some motorists might be disturbed and the media might try to pump that up, the, uh, most people who voted to have a shift in the last election, they're actually pricking up their ears to this. They are paying attention to you and, and possibly are grateful that, that you're keeping this as hot as it can be. I'm just sorry that it has taken such a toll on you. <laughs> Um, tell us a little bit, just to the listeners, how they can support you. It's going to be hard now because there'll be court cases. I don't know how many people have been arrested already, but that will be a long and prolonged and could be life-changing experience. So how can people support that? Oh, there are just an infinite um, amount of ways that people can give support. So I think that the main thing that we really need from people who are watching and really care and... Um, want to support this is to just take some personal responsibility and reach out because you if you can cook if you can support somebody even over the phone if you can offer monetary support or a bed if someone really needs it you know that there is really a million ways to help um and it's it's decentralized it's non-exclusive it doesn't matter what your background is it doesn't matter what your skills are if you want to contribute all you need to do is put in a little bit of effort and people will be there really nice people will be there embracing you into this movement because it is the most important thing yeah so how can people find that out where where do they go to look that up i presume it's on the internet somewhere yeah well there's going to be online info talks every wednesday and saturday for the next three weeks starting this saturday but there's also going to be um local meetups in lots of places around the continent on the 6th of August so anybody is welcome to come to those that that's not a you know that's not an exclusive thing either and we would love people to come and meet others and talk about how they might see themselves contributing to this movement because 
yeah, we, we all need to take responsibility for this and we need to build people power, which is the only real power there's ever been. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, heaps. I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. Introduce yourself, your background, you know, from Newcastle. Yeah, so my name is Quinn. I've been a supporter of the Blockhead Australia campaign since it uh, launched at the Coalport in Newcastle. Uh, I'm from Newcastle myself and uh, involved, got involved from that point and locked myself onto a stacker reclaimer at the Coalport uh, with an elbow lock on. And uh, yeah, since then I've, I've gone through the court process and have uh, continue to be involved and, and support the campaign as it's um, pivoted from the coal port to some more kind of systemic targets across Sydney. Can you explain that? People can understand, yes, stop the coal. Uh, there's been big battles up in Bentley, for example, over gas, you know, stop the gas before they even start exploiting it. But what about the city, like blocking a tunnel and, a, and citizens who are trying to get to work in the... That, that's going to just irritate people, isn't it? Sure. I think the um, strategy that Blockade Australia uh, has taken has been trying to identify um, the extractive uh, industries uh, in Australia as part of a larger system which exploits the, the landscape and the people in it. Um, in, in blockading the coal port of Newcastle, that we felt was a quite a suitable way to start a campaign as a space that a lot of people in the climate movement recognise as a very large contributor to the climate crisis and ecological collapse and um, for a lot of people makes sense as a target. Bucket Australia isn't making d any demands for particular industries. Yes, coal and gas needs to be uh, kept in the ground. We need to develop better energy systems, but that's not the, that's not the full picture either. So thank you, Quinn. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Radio Show. And thank you to Blockade Australia members who spoke to us and all of those who gave them some sort of sanctuary and just quiet place in the city and support. Thanks to Rachel Evans and Mike Head for their journalism on this, which was much more balanced than all of those who just called them professional pests. And thank you to Sue Higginson for her defence of their actions in the New South Wales Parliament and for her defence of our democracy, which is threatened by these exaggerated police uh, powers that have been recently given in New South Wales. And there was a, a quote I'd like to finish with from a spokesman for Blockade Australia who spoke to Rachel Evans. He said, we are facing a catastrophic climate collapse. And then he said this, any dissent that is accepted by the system is an ineffective form of dissent. There is no such thing as legal or illegal protest. Every significant win for civil liberties over the last hundred years, from the vote to the end of apartheid, has relied on so-called illegal protest. So I'll leave you with that 
listeners and say thank you again for listening. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.